Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis and New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Um, so how's the how's the, the real estate business in Florida right now? Are you like, you know, um, are you still busy or what's going on? Um, I'm not busy at the current moment. Like I have one renovation going on, um, but I'm trying to prepare for what I think might be a little bit of a downturn toward the, uh, you know, once we come out of all this. Okay. So kind of busy, not as much, definitely a lot busier on the, uh, the healthcare side. So you think the downturn is going to be uh, limited to uh, commercial or, or residential as well? Um, I'm not certain. Um, so like the way I, th- I think about it is like, for instance, I was only expecting maybe like 12 to 16 million um, unemployed claims, right? We're at 22 already as a lot uh, today. Um, so that significantly blew yeah. through. Because uh, what I was thinking was initially, you know, if the people were going to be like laid off or furloughed, they would have been done in like the first two weeks. So yeah. that number shouldn't really be ticking up. So when it went up beyond 16, I was like, okay, that's really surprising because that means now other businesses that are probably not um, as impacted by like as much as say like restaurants or hospitality are now feeling the effects and they're yeah. laying off people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just kind of thinking about it, like, you know, like off the top of my head, I know going into this, we had like a huge issue with subprime auto loans. Um, so I'm not sure certain because businesses tend to be better capitalized. Like they have better, like, you know, like reserves and credit lines than people. But people also have been receiving a little bit better direct assistance with like a stimulus check, um, forcing evictions to, to, to pause. So I'm not sh- sure exactly where they'll start. My guess is they'll actually probably start on the commercial side if I have to like make a bet. Um, given like the kind of like the, the, you know, most commercial real estate owners, you know, they refi every five years. So like everyone who had to refi this year are probably gonna have some difficulty doing that. You know, there's a lot of large commercial businesses, Cheesecake being the most notable, and Equinox that haven't paid their rents this month. That's that's gonna be a big, you know, a big chunk because those are anchor property, like our anchor um, tenants. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's what, that's what I think it would be. What? what uh, so explain to people what anchor tenants mean. So anchor tenants, for instance, like um, if you're in the, you're probably more familiar from the burbs. If you're in the suburbs, you see like a shopping center. You'll probably see like one large store, like a Home Depot, a Publix or something like that. That's the anchor. In New York City, um, if you think of, um, what's, that area, uh, what's that area right by uh, like the World Trade Center, like across the street? Oh, that's in, not not in Yards. Um, so I get what you're saying, like a Macy's, like a Macy's probably. Yeah. Right? In yeah. Hudson Yards, the, um, the anchor tenant is J.P. Morgan. Um, okay. The biggest tenant there, the people okay. who, are, who probably got the best rates, who are now going to bring in other people. Okay, makes sense. Makes sense. They usually drive so, other tenants or foot or like foot traffic into that property. Yeah, I'm surprised you said that. You know, businesses are usually well capitalized because I, I'm shocked at how uh, over leveraged some of these businesses are. I mean, I'm shocked that um, the Cheesecake Factory, you know, can't run their businesses for for a month i mean i'm shocked that they're you know almost going out of business well it's not necessarily can't it's like they might not okay, okay. right um you know let's say like you know like cheesecake factory has a billion dollars in cash they may and you know and they have to pay half a billion into rent and or leases they might just decide you know this is the thing we can press on as opposed to something else right okay okay so they have yeah. the money. They may have the. the they reserves. may have the money. They, they just, may have the reserves. Right. They just they say they they can do other things with this money or hold on oh. until the yeah exactly better. right. What are your thoughts on on uh, the stimulus package and do you uh you know the amounts that individuals are getting the programs that are made available to businesses versus you know individuals like do you think it's comparable to uh, what businesses are receiving versus what individuals are receiving What are your thoughts on that? Well, there, there, I mean, there's a couple of tiers of it, right? There's what, like the individual stimulus amounts, $1,200. There's a small business, which is like $390 billion. Um, and then there are like what, like the actual bailouts for like airlines and whatnot. 
And then there's a bunch of other hidden things in there, like the liquidity that was sent via the Federal Reserve into the, into the capital markets, the tax credits that a bunch of people are getting. Um, in short, I think it's it's just absolute BS that, you know, like we had we ground our economy to a halt. And this is all that the government is doing. And most of the money is being sent to like bailouts for corporations. Yeah. Who, who spent most of their money, like, you know, all of their excess, like, you know, return, like, um, you know, money they're making last year on my like, share buybacks. Um, like, you know, like, um, like Oscar Munoz, who's like probably the biggest, like a whole CEO around. Uh, he's the CEO of um, United Airlines. Yeah. Um, you know, he was threatening to lay off people. And if he didn't get enough big enough bailout for um, United Airlines. But we don't like you don't have to bail out the airlines because most of the airlines, you know, like the shareholders are wealthier individuals, either institutions or people. It would just make sense that instead of spending like ten billion dollars to bail out United Airlines, you spend ten billion dollars extra on airline employees, and that would have a much better impact. Um, you know, like like economic study after study has shown like trickle down economics doesn't work; it's trickle up. The U.S. is a consumer-based economy, so if consumers have money, they end up spending it. People who are less wealthy spend a greater share of their income. So if you spend, uh, you know, if you give them more money, they're more likely to spend it. Versus if you give a millionaire money, he's already probably covered everything he wants at that point, and he can't go out and buy a yacht right now, so he's not going to. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. And uh, your your you know Chamatalapala Habitaya, I'm butchering his name. He just came. He went on CNBC and said exactly that, right? just yeah you're bailing out the billionaires um but he made the argument also that once you you know bail out these uh the let's say airline companies they're not um going to lay off everybody and also people were concerned about uh pensions being ruined but that doesn't typically happen like when a company goes uh bankrupt their pensions are protected so it's not like the pensions of these airlines companies are going going to be uh, lost if like the company did go bankrupt like those are safe yeah, right exactly yeah pensions are legal obligations and yeah. no one who started working last 20 years is getting a pension anyway so yeah well some companies surprisingly you know two out of the last three companies surprisingly i don't know how they still had their pension you worked in finance right that finance is yeah. the one place that you're known for be um for having a pension yeah um, so yeah, so when people say, oh, you know, you're, you're bailing out these companies to, to save the employees from losing their jobs, it's not always true. Um, because it's not true at all, I'd argue. Yeah. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I w- it's not true at all. I'd argue. I'm sorry. So you're saying, yeah, you're saying that it's not true. Sorry. That's what I meant. Yeah. yeah it's not exactly. true. The, the, but, but, um, what they typically do is the money is lost by people that are institutional investors who knew the risk that, that they were taking, right? Like, and that's, that's Chamat's whole argument is that like, let these guys, let these big sharks fail because they knew what they were getting into. Um, and, you know, and, 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 and they also have, you know, they, they have other, other means to, to get by. Yeah, exactly. And there is one argument, like, you know, the biggest investors in the world are CalPERS, which is like New York State, or sorry, California Pension, uh, Public Employees Pension. And then that followed by New York's Public Employees Pensions. Then it's California, I think, teachers' pensions, and then New York State's uh, policeman fire. So it's a bunch of pension funds versus public employees. But at the same time, they structure their obligations. Those guys are pretty sophisticated. Um, You know, their immediate obligations are probably not in the stock market. They're probably like in bonds and other things like that. So even like if you make that argument, like it's, I I don't see it like because their equity portfolios aren't in. You know, like for their current maturities that they're going to need to pay, you know, the people who are retiring like this year mm. uh, versus also, you know, like if you actually gave the money to individuals, you get a quicker recovery, I think, um, because they would be spending more. So uh, you don't have to wait for it to trickle through. So what, what made you, um, you were in investment banking first, right? Um, talk yeah. about, you know, your, your um, journey from investment banking to going in and, you know, going to your own business, uh, which is, uh, sounds like it's a family business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have like a, a LinkedIn version and then there's probably like, uh, then I can give you maybe like a romanticized Bollywood version. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I'm, I'll add the Kush Kush Otahe music while you're saying the... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so, so I, I came out of school actually, um, let's start the story in school. I had no idea what finance was investment banking was kind of growing up in an immigrant family in, in the burbs. 
Um, the closest thing I knew was being a corporate lawyer. So that's what I came into school doing. And then having taken a couple of courses, some of my um, like business school professors were, um, hey, you know, you could actually, this if you like the business component, why don't you look into finance and go to Wall Street or consulting? And then eventually end up on Wall Street. My journey from there to my business basically was, so on Wall Street, like your compensation effectively correlates with um, the stock market, regardless of what you're doing. Like I worked on the banking side, which is primarily like private-ish transactions versus being like a trader or salesperson who's really on the market side. Um, but, you know, CEOs do deals, which generates most of like banking fees when the stock market is going up because that's when the company is valued more, they can buy other companies, they feel more confident. Uh, so to diversify, what I started doing was actually building like a real estate business. Um, I was investing in kind of residential apartments down back in Florida. Um, so that I built that business kind of on my own and my dad was helping me manage it um, because I didn't have boots on the ground because so, I wasn't here. So, you know, if like a, a realtor would send me a property, uh, I would do almost all remote, like analyze it, look at the pictures, and then the final walkthrough he would help me with in like going and doing that. And then same thing with like property management. He was kind of like the last line of defense of where if he had to go tour work or help me find someone, like he could do that, like being on the ground. Um, so toward the end of my banking career, say like 2016, um, to the music, um, I, I was basically looking to actually get out of finance and go to work for one of my clients um, from banking. But um, I had just started dating someone. So I decided not to do that, to not to leave New York. Um, this job would be in Atlanta, which is actually like the city I went to college in. Um, side note, Atlanta is America's best kept secret. It's one of the best cities in the US. Yeah, I love Atlanta. Yeah. Um, anyhow, so I ended up not doing that and stayed in banking beyond what was probably like what I wanted to do. Um, and banking being, you know, rigorous, very intensive with hours and, um, you know, just like in a very intense culture, like my heart wasn't in it and my performance basically wasn't there because, you know, I was, I was kind of dialing it in. Um, so, you know, like my, and my performance, they're kind of like, it doesn't really seem like you want to be here. And I was like, oh shoot, you guys can tell. <laughs> and it was pretty obvious. But you lasted a few years. It wasn't like you just... Yeah, well, this was probably like toward the, like the, the last yeah. year of banking. So, like, I yeah. came into banking, like, gung-ho. Like, I loved it for the first, like, three, four years. Yeah. And I got a little spoiled because, like, the, the team I worked at for my first company, they were a great team. Like, those were, like, family guys who did a really good job of balancing an 80-hour work week with personal responsibilities, as hard as that is. And toward the other end, I worked for guys who were probably, like, your traditional Wall Street um, like those guys were like almost stuck in the eighties. Like, like uh, if you read monkey business, which is the book, a lot of guys on banker, um, all should read. Some of those bankers are the guys like my, my, uh, like, yeah, I, bo like boiler, boiler room type of guys. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I just wasn't enjoying it. And so what I ended up doing was like, I was like, you know, like I'm doing well enough on the real estate side that I don't necessarily have to stay in banking. So, you know, um, I was saying I was going to quit actually that year. Um, but before I quit, um, they actually like, uh, they laid me off. Um, but I came in with a guarantee and all this. So they fulfilled my my contract and then sent me away. Uh, Wall Street's, wow. I think, one of the few places where like, you know, you, you get like athlete type like contracts almost with guarantees wow. and all this. Um, yeah. So basically they cut my contract short in a sense. Um, you know, so we, in effect, mutually said goodbye. And I hung out in New York for about a year. And then came back. Um, so I took up the reins of my real estate business directly when I got back here. But then I also did join like my family's business where they have like a commercial real estate business. And I helped them manage that. So all in all, right now I have twenty sorry twenty one. I just sold a couple units, apartment units down here. Uh, and then I'm the asset manager with my family um, for a group of people for about sixty thousand square foot of commercial. And then last year we went into senior housing, uh, like assisted living nursing homes. Okay. So why, what made you choose Florida as the market? Uh, is that, or is that because it's purely because yeah, that's where your family was? No, I, I think when I initially started investing, um, I looked at um, also like Atlanta. Um, that's Florida and Atlanta stood out to me just because I knew all of those markets really well. Um, like if you set a neighborhood to me in Atlanta or down in South Florida, I had a pretty good idea of like where it was, the demographic trends are if it wasn't a path of progress what the catalyst could be um i ended up going with florida just because i had better boots on the ground 
um, you know, like uh, my family being here. Um, and because the, actually the first property I bought, it, although it was in Florida, it was like an hour away from like where we were. So um, okay. it, 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 I just felt more comfortable between those two markets and like knowing this area better and yeah. having a lot more contact in this market. Yeah. Yeah, I did, the, I did the same thing in Atlanta. And even though um, I didn't use my parents, I just felt comfortable that they were there. So I still mm -hmm. hired a property manager, but uh, but I still, it was just nice knowing that, I don't know. What, that yeah, they like, were there, I felt like they were a last there. line of defense. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, what do you, what's a market now that you think is, if somebody, okay, forget that if, if the uh, uh, epidemic wasn't happening, if the pandemic wasn't happening, what's a good market now that if somebody wanted to start getting investing uh, uh, started in? It's a good market. Is it still Florida or in Atlanta? I, I think it depends on your goals, right? Like if you are a cash flow investor, then you're probably looking more at some of the markets in the South, like uh, tertiary, secondary tertiary markets, maybe like Alabama, um, you know, Huntsville, outside Atlanta, uh, some places in the Midwest, like Cincinnati. If you're if you're here for capital gains and you want to make big bucks, like trying to flip properties. You want to you want to be in like right next to the path of uh, progress. Like you want to be like right outside the primary markets, like Atlanta, like Miami. Um, so I think I think it depends on your goals. Okay. Um, I'm primarily a cash flow investor, so I like the secondary tertiary markets a lot better. Like you know, like in Florida, even I'm not investing in Miami or Palm Beach. I'm investing in smaller cities, uh, like you know, more like more suburban parts of the of the state. Uh, sometimes some like rural parts of the state. Um, so I, I think it depends on what your goals are. Okay. What do you think about Trump's uh, opportunity zones? Um, I don't know if he was the one that came up with the concept. But I think other presidents have thrown it out, yeah. but he takes credit for it. So I was curious. What do you th what do you what do you think about what do you think about opportunity zones? It's also because he takes credit for things that he never had anything to do with, but not for <laughs> stuff that actually happened under him. Yeah. Um. I think Obama's administration was actually the guys who came yeah. up with the over to, uh, they passed the opportunity zone, yeah. but they uh, came into effect under Trump. Yeah, yeah. They're interesting. Um, the problem in all our political processes is that like there's too much like subjective kind of like measures because the state governors are the ones who pick the opportunity zones, right? So Republican governors pick Republican districts, Democratic governors pick Democratic districts. Um, like. Sometimes necessary, like sometimes necessary, sometimes not. Like uh, I know government, like Gavin Newsom, he picked a couple of districts inside San Francisco. Um, so maybe there are some districts in San Francisco that need investment. I'm not sure, but there's already a lot of money there. Um, I think it's an interesting concept. And can you explain I, to people what the concept is of an opportunity zone? Sure. An opportunity zone, basically. Um, I forget exactly how many there are per state, but basically. Um, it creates a, a tax regime whereby if you like sold a business or have, have a high capital gains tax liability, like you're like a tech founder and you sold your business for like $10 million. Your base is like you started the company probably with like a hundred thousand dollars in like your mom's basement. So now you owe like $9 million in, like that's subject to, um, you know, capital gains, which probably means the tax liability would say like almost $2 million. If you invest that two million, like that nine million dollars, though, I think it's nine. It has to be all your capital gains into an opportunity zone. You don't um, pay. You get to defer your capital gains tax for up to ten years, and then after ten years, actually can go away if it's the right zone. Um, I don't remember the exact details on this. Um, and those zones are picked by governors as areas that need um, investment. Okay. A lot of time, like sometimes, you know, like I've seen some of the districts in Florida and in Atlanta and. You know those areas do need investment, um, so I think there is an opportunity to create a lot of investment. It just ha and I like that the fact it's long dated, um, that you have to be there for like seven to ten years, because uh, I think you know like gentrification, yeah, versus progress is gentrification is like a, a three year one to three year horizon. You come in, turn the building out, so the the, the people who live there can't catch up. But if you do it over ten years, the people have a chance to catch up. Yeah. Um. So I, I really like that aspect of it. Um. So I think, you know, it's like everything, it's like a balance. It's like, there's a lot of good things about it, like the, the time horizon. Um, some of the regions that were picked are really good, um, but there's a there's still a little bit of politics being played because the governors are picking the district as opposed to like hard math about, oh, like, you know, inc um, per capita income being X, Y, Z or something like that. Okay. So I want to go back to, uh, I asked you about what's a good market. So what are, um, 
you know, because a lot of people, um, I don't have a big portfolio like you, but some people I know, some people know that I have a few properties and they always ask me, how do I get started? How would somebody get started? Somebody that's in college or somebody that's just starting to work has a couple of years under their belt. Um, how somebody gets started in real estate investing? Um, there's two paths this way. There's direct and there's in, indirect. Um, indirect is short, so let's quickly touch on that. So let's say you, you're, you know, like a professional in New York City, very expensive market, hard for you to buy anything, right? Um, you could invest with other people. Like they could find people like you or me or some other real estate, um, they're called sponsors, um, and invest with them. So, you know, they get a pretty good return um, for putting up their money. Um, usually they, they're split between the sponsor and the investor. So that's one way. The other way is, you know, if you can, you can do remote investing, like it's possible. There's a lot of books and blogs about that. Um, David Green wrote a pretty good intro book yeah. about um, uh, remote investing. He is an individual who lives in San Francisco, but he invests like in Florida and in the South. Um, so like, you know, exactly opposite ends of the country. Uh, so there's a pretty good book there. But I, I, like the, the way I usually tell people to get started is if you can, like do an FHA loan and, um, you know, you, it's like 3.5% to 7% down. You buy like a duplex wherever you are. Those exist. Duplexes, you know, exist in like some of the, even the nicest neighborhoods. Like they're just like townhomes or like split level homes. Like in New Jersey, like you buy a split level home and like you can do it in like Montclair. Like, yeah. um, um, so you, you know, spend a little bit of like and, and three and a half percent down. Like if it's even like a half million dollar home, that's like 17,000 bucks. Um, that's not a crazy sum of money to start with. Um, if you don't have like $20,000 to start real estate, man, you probably need to spend more time saving. Yeah. Um, so so I always start with that program, um, whereas first, I guess, to lay it out, it's like save enough so you can cover yourself, go with one of those programs. And I usually recommend people do like an FHA to do a multifamily. If you're a college kid, the cool thing is um, you could do like, I think what Bigger Pockets called house hacking, um, yeah. where you like rent an apartment and then you rent the rooms or you buy like a house or buy an apartment and then rent the rooms out. Because, you know, as we all know, when you buy wholesale bigger and you chop it into little pieces, you can sell those for a higher margin than if you were to like do the whole thing. So, yeah, I like how bigger pockets simplifies things. What did they have? The Burr method. You're familiar with the yeah. Burr method, right? By yeah. Reno, uh, refinance, refinance, repeat. Yeah. yeah, find it interesting. David Green's one of the hosts, right? Uh, I he comes on. Often. He was one of the hosts when I was listening to it. Um, yeah. yeah. You so want resources that people might have to get into it? Like bigger pockets, really good. Yeah, bigger pockets is amazing. Um, Joe Freles has a good one that's a lot quicker. Um, okay. That's a lot more high level. Um, there's a, a guy. The one actually I started with was um, Kevin Bupp. He's focused exclusively on commercial. Um, okay. Actually, let me look up this one guy real quick. I just found his podcast, and I haven't listened to a bunch, but they've been pretty good. It's really okay. technical. Um, okay. It's called oh yeah. achieving achieve wealth through value add real estate investing and it's by okay. James Kandasamy K A N D A S A M Y. That's probably for a little bit more advanced individuals. They talk pretty um, like pretty granular, pretty technical, um, which is why I like it. It's a little bit less about mindset. Okay, but that's cool that you're even though you have what sixty thousand square feet on about twenty properties, you're still trying to. Um, learn and um, you know identify new new methods to investing stuff. That's cool. It's it's um that. So what what else? How are you doing that? Like, are you just constantly asking about podcasts? What are you reading? What else? What are the books are you reading right now? Um, first of all, I think like like that, the difference between people who are like really successful and people who are not, or even like moderately successful, is the learning curve. Like, how much can you keep learning? Um, so to that effect, you know, like I listen to like a like a wide range of podcasts. So I do listen to a couple of real estate podcasts, like some of the ones we went through, Joe Farrell's Bigger Pockets, um, James Kandasmi, um, Kevin Bob. But I also listen to a bunch of other podcasts. Like, um, you know, I listen to a bunch of like startup podcasts, like Goldman Sachs has one. Um, I think it's called like Conversation with Goldman Sachs. Um, How I Built This, of course, from of course. scratch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's one called Pivot. Um, Masters of Scale is one of my favorite podcasts. It's by Reed Hoffman, um, the guy who founded LinkedIn. Um, a to Z, uh, Andrewson Horowitz. Uh, they they have a podcast. Andrewson Horowitz is like a most premier like venture capital firm. So even though I'm not necessarily in like 
a startup type business, there's a lot that you can learn from that. Um, you know, like we were having, like when I first took over the assisted living facility, we were having some cost issues. And the way I ended up kind of like balancing that out was based on some inspiration I actually heard on one of the startup podcasts. And then also I listened about the winter podcast for like, gro- like spiritual and personal growth. Um, Tony, uh, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, well, his, his podcast I love, it's like super like, it's like everywhere, but you know, he goes into business, uh, fitness, personal growth, uh, and then also like constantly reading, like, um, like I've read some stats somewhere where I think like the CEO on average reads, like America's CEOs on average read one book a month. Um, and guys like Bill Gates and like super performers are reading like a book like every two weeks. Yeah. Whereas the average American reads a book, I think like two or three books a year. Wow. So, yeah. And did you see the documentary on Netflix inside uh, Bill's brain? He carries, yeah, I saw that. He carries around this huge bag with, uh, with books. books. Yeah. He has this method. I don't know if you, he talked about it where he reads, you know, for me, like, I, and I'm not a great, I'm not a big reader. I read a little bit. I should probably read more. But I, uh, one thing he does, which I find fascinating, is he reads multiple books at the same time. So mm-hmm. he'll read one book, uh, not finish, and then he'll read another book. And he says it does some weird, like, commingling of thoughts that he finds, like, really, really interesting. So he'll read, like, four, four books at the same time, which I find really interesting. Yeah, so I, I, so I, I saw that. I didn't like the series as much, but I did watch it. Yeah. Um, but I was once again, I was kind of, I was hoping that he would delve into a little bit more about his finding of Microsoft, which he was not as interested in. But well, what he's talking about is, um, basically he's, he's, he, he tries to relate. So like, let's say he's reading a book on like healthcare on healthcare and like the pandemic. He would try to relate that to like maybe a star, a book about a business he's reading or like a, a fiction book he's reading. Um, and yeah, I have read some research about like connecting what you're learning yeah. with what you already know or something else you're learning, you know, creates uh well, longer lasting learning, but also gets you to, I think, think more creatively. Yeah. I've tried yeah, that. I, I wasn't successful at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I can, I can do it, but, uh, cause I have to read one book at a time, but I mean, that, that guy obviously knows what he's doing. I'm not gonna tell yeah. him to do something different. Um, so, uh, I want, no, I do, want to talk- do this wrong. What's that? Can you imagine, like, nah, Bill Gates, you got this wrong. You're tripping. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Um, I talked about the uh, the tech piece because you said that you talked a little bit about tech. I know you invest in tech, like you're an angel, uh-huh. angel investor. How did you get involved in that? Were you always doing that? Or, you know, how did that come about? So 2012 was when I bought my first property. It was also when I made my first startup investment. Um, I had a friend in college reach out to me saying, hey, I'm starting a company. Do you want to be an investor? And I was like, awesome, yes. And did zero due diligence. Um, he's a friend of mine, so I, I don't feel that bad about it. But it took off from there where I started becoming more interested in the process. And also I realized that as I learned more about it and how to diligence a company, I like, like uh, you know, like when you diligence a company or like a, a property, it's a lot of like number and like technical things. When you diligence like a starter, a startup, sorry, and a founder, um, the diligence process is a little bit more different. Um, you like the concept is called like a uh, bet on the jockey, not the horse. So you're betting on the founder as opposed to his idea or something like that in hopes that, you know, even if the idea isn't great, like the founder is good enough that they'll pivot and figure it out. Um, so, so actually in, in learning how to be like doing diligence, I realized like I really like that process a lot, like getting to know people, getting to know founders, thinking about uh, learning how they think through problems. And that's kind of where it spiraled. And now I kind of work with a couple of friends out of New York um, to do angel deals. The last, um, deal we did was, um, it was a large electric car company, actually. Um, they're trying to find liquidity for, um, their employees. So we bought that tranche, um, with some friends, um, through a fund. Um, so that was pretty cool. Uh, and then, you know, just learning about all these new tag and all these new solutions people are coming up with. Um, I, you know, I just found it really interesting. Um, I'm super curious about like, you know, what, change makers in the world are doing. Yeah. Um, I think that's a key word, right? Curious, right? And I noticed that yeah. about just really, really successful people, Bill Gates included, he's just always really interested about, uh, you know, what's going on. Chamath talks about it all the time. Chamath, and he's a really successful investor. He's just like, he's just always, you know, trying out products. Like forget about even just reading about it. Like he's just always like ordering new products, downloading new apps and just trying it out. Like that's the, like the best way to, to learn and just stay curious. Yeah, dude, that's one of the things I like about your podcast, actually, because it's so wide ranging. 
yeah. like you know you had you know like uh like nonprofit founders you had yeah. um, the guy who's a cpa um actually yeah. like, yeah, I, figured, I, I bought um what was it his name is Tal Dar, like the book i bought Tahid, yeah yeah, Tahid. yeah um yeah yeah just from you know like listening to this podcast yeah he's he's cool anderson uh he, one of his uh initial investors was that was anderson horowitz um so he talks oh, about awesome. it on the podcast yeah uh-huh. Yeah, so it's been cool. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, I, I have like, that. and I had like uh, mental health people, and right, yeah, yeah. And, and for me, that's the thing because this, and I, I started with, I start the conversation with that. I'm like, listen, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know a lot about mental health, but tell me, um, and that's how I go about it. And I've, I've learned a lot from, uh, from these podcasts. So great conversation. Um, so is it the tech? Uh, the, 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 is it you know people? Uh, people's exposure to, to investing in tech is most people's is is Shark Tank. Right? I guess the first thing people think of Shark Tank, and people in the yeah. UK, I guess it's Dra- Dragons Den, which is a lot better by the way. Dragons Den in the UK is so much better than Shark Tank. You should you should, you should watch uh-huh. it if you haven't. But like how that. how different how different is it? Um, the, how different is that from real life, or how similar is it from, from real life? Oh, it's like completely different. Because you know, like on Shark Tank, you know, they actually take a percentage of your company for just showing off because yeah. you're getting such a marketing exposure. Yeah, yeah. They don't tell you so, that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think they take like two percent or like point two percent, something like that, because you're going to generate sales because they got like three million people watching the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like what those guys are doing, they they're effectively um, what's known in like the investing community as an incubator. Like Mark Cuban, um, even um, Arod, they have businesses set up where you know they have a marketing team, they have a sales team, they have a sourcing team. So they just when they invest in a company, they just kind of like drop them in that infrastructure and then like let them run. Um, whereas when you're into investing, it's a little different. Uh, where you know, you, like unless you're investing through a fund, maybe you're not going to set up a, like one of your uh, portfolio companies with that. So it's like completely different. And then the diligence side is like probably where the biggest difference is. Like in, on Shark Tank, they're spending like 15, I don't know what kind of like research they get or like literature they get on the company before someone shows up. Um, but you know, it looks like they're doing like a five to 10 minute uh, like presentation, which is probably 20 minutes when it's uncut. Yeah. Um, and then they make a decision based on that. And that's somewhat right, right? Like you get a 20 minute management presentation and then you do, you, but you do a bunch of work on the background. Right. Um, yeah. so either someone's doing it for them, that no one's seeing, or they're not doing it at all because they have the infrastructure to just propel them based on, um, uh, you, you know, what the resources are. Like I knew a private com- equity company, like when I worked in banking, that specialized in consumer products because they had like all the contacts at top retailers, like Walmart, Target, this, that. So they found a decent product. They could just push it to the channel. So it didn't necessarily matter. Um, every, anything else didn't really matter because they could, they knew they could get um, the demand for it. They could create the demand for it. Wow. So yeah, maybe um, part of what like Mark Cuban talks about, who's a shark on the show, he's, what you said earlier is, you know, they're betting on the jockey, not the horse. So, but, mm-hmm. so do you think in whatever, you know, two hours or uh, whatever they have, um, where an investor comes, invest, uh, 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 someone comes with a pitch. Do you think you can recognize in two hours whether that jockey is like the real deal? Um, I, I mean, I, I, I definitely think I, or I know some investors who can, who can get a sense of like, like really what you're t- looking for in a founder is grit. Um, yeah. Can they survive? And like, I knew a, like a founder I invested in, um, he, 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 he was doing great. Like he raised a bunch of money. And then when he started to dry out and the business started turning around, he cut his salary, or he actually took zero salary, worked nights at a restaurant, and then would work during the day. So he would work like 10, 12 hours during the day at a startup, and then work like eight hour, eight to 10 hours at a restaurant at night. Wow. to like, you know, keep the company afloat. Like, that's the kind of founder you want to invest in. Like, he will figure it out. Um, so I, I, th- like, I think you can develop the skill set to, to figure that out. Um, you just have to do it a lot more Often than say like a casual investor like me, but I, I think you can, but you can develop that skill set. Okay, so let's go back to um, real estate. So I know you mentioned you worked with your uh, family. How's that dynamic like? Because uh, you know, a lot of people want to get away from their from their family as far as possible, and you're working with them. Uh huh. Um, I don't. So, I mean, I work with them, but I also don't work with them, right? Like 
most of my portfolio is not with them, right? Like my residential portfolio. Um, and they're, they were an, they're an investor in my, um, in the ALS, the assisted living community. Um, so I give them updates and then, um, my mom's a physician, she's in healthcare. So I do ask her for help on certain things, but they're not really necessarily involved in the same way. Um, so I it hasn't been like, we're not super entrenched, right? Like my dad and I aren't sitting next to each other. Like we're, I'm actually in his office, okay. <laughs> but I'm not, I, I don't like, you know, we're not sitting like next to each other or even in the same building. Um, okay, my okay. office is in Fort Lauderdale. His is down in, is in Palm Beach. Um, okay. we, most of our connect, communication is done over the phone. Um, okay. Or when I'm at their house. Um, okay. so it hasn't been that crazy, but also my dad, like my dad actually went to college in the U S. So I think the way he thinks about businesses and his general critical thinking thought process is similar to like what I was trained to do in school. So he and I actually don't clash as much and our personalities align more. Um, I realized like if I asked my mom for help, who she got her, you know, she went to med school in, in Bangladesh and whatnot. Um, it's like a completely different thought process. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. um, she's, you know, deep insights, very helpful, but it's a completely different like process. And, you know, sometimes I'm just like, wait, what? <laughs> um, so, but I haven't had a lot of friction. Um, I think just because they're not super entrenched. Um, Where, all, your... there... Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say there have been some flashpoints. Um, like, you know, like with the ALF, there, there, it's a new business, right? Um, so I did have to do like a, like a second capital draw. Um, basically, um, I think I took in three months of additional funding. I needed one extra month. Um, so when I did a capital call, um, she freaked out at me. She's like, well, I'm like, every other investor was like, yeah, sure. Like we get it. It's, a, it's like, you know, a year old. <laughs> but she gave me the most trouble, which is kind of ironic being my own mom, <laughs> um, which is good though, you know, like making it rigorous for me to like justify why like the business yeah. wasn't doing well. Um, but you know, I'm going to turn that around. Wow. Um, sorry, what was your question? What were you saying? Where, where are your, where are your family? So where are your family from in Bangladesh? Where's your family from? Um, so my dad's from Sila, but he grew up in Chiragong. Um, okay. my grandpa, he worked for the government okay. or he worked, he works in public sector job where, um, so he was brought to Chiragong from Sila and then my mom's from Chiragong. And they first immigrated to Florida or they lived in New York? You guys lived in New York first. Uh, no, actually, um, um, my, we first immigrated to Florida. Well, my dad got here when he was like in college. So like he, I, he, he graduated initially from New York. He, he went to, uh, uh, city college in New York and then he came down here to, I think, finish like college and then grad, no, finish college. Um, and then my mom came over, she came here direct to Florida. Okay. We, okay. um, my uncle also, my mom's brother came down, uh, to Florida too. Okay. Is there a large, uh, Bengali community where you are? Yeah. I think stats wise, we're the fourth biggest. It's like New York, Cali, Houston, or Texas, and then Florida. I thought Atlanta would be a, a top four. I thought Atlanta oh, maybe, would be. Maybe more. it might be a top five, but Florida is definitely one of the bigger communities. I know. Interesting. Um, yeah, there's, so for software is organized in an interesting way. It's considered a megalopolis. Um, like, so Palm beach, even though it's a city on itself, it's still considered part of greater Miami. So I, the analogy I would make is like Miami would be like New York city. And then you go to Florida, which is like maybe like one of the outer boroughs and then Palm beach would be like long Island. Um, in that sense, um, I, I think the last number I heard was like a hundred to 120,000 Bengalis in this area. Really? And, wow. Yeah. That's a lot. I would not yeah. have expected that. Something like you, that, yeah. You, you but, run so, but once again, though, when you say Bengali, like we don't know if it includes only Bangladeshis or if it calls like Bengalis from like Kol uh, Kolkata. Yeah, and yeah I'm, 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 I'm considering both. Yeah. And I'm, uh, yeah. I'm surprised it's even that much. Wow. Um, Dude, you, New York is like half a million. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, New York is, is it half a million? Wow. I'm a really curious. More. I'm really curious what the census shows. Um, Oh yeah, it yeah. I, I yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, out of boroughs and maybe upstate, maybe half a million. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, definitely undoc an undocumented could probably get to that number. Yeah, it's interesting. It's yeah. crazy. Um. Uh, how how in how like how um connected are you to being a Bengali? Like, do you go back to Bangladesh? Like, are you guys? You know, I know you had. I know you're a part of this uh, South Florida Bangladesh organization that you uh, that you help run, right? Uh, well, the, the organization I help run is, is more of a Muslim professionals network. Okay. Okay. Um, 
I ha- I actually don't go back to Bangladesh as much as I would like to. I've been back. So I moved here when I was three. And I've been back once in 2012. Wow. Yeah. And most of my, uh, like my family, if they're here, like all of my mom's side actually is in South Florida. Okay. My dad's side, um, we have only, like, I have only one uncle in Bangladesh. Um, the rest are, are split between New York and London. They did the whole silly thing with London. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So we, I haven't gone back as much as I'd like to. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, pl- being plugged in wise, like, I mean, so uh, my parents made sure, like, I mean, I'm an accent, but, you know, yeah. like, I could speak it fluently. And yeah, I used I'm to be able to read it. Um, well, I still can. It just takes me a long time. Yeah, same here. Yeah. Um, I want to be more plugged in, actually. Like, I think that's kind of how, like, we became friends. Is yeah. I was looking to connect with more like Bengali movers and shakers. Like when I lived in New York, I met a bunch of like um, general mover, like or general Muslim like movers and shakers, like community founders, community organizers, artists. Um, I didn't get, find a lot of Bengali people to connect with. Um, I think that's a lot, a lot to do with the fact that I was in kind of like the uh, the transplant cloud of New York. Yeah, most Bengalis being from New York yeah. don't wander into that because they have friends who are who are already there. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, like I started looking for, you know, like, thanks to like, you know, like Boney um, for, you know, putting up this stuff because now I, I see all like this awesome stuff that Bengali community is doing. I'm yeah. trying to actually get more plugged in. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and people think that I'm super plugged in and I'm not, but that's one of the reasons we started it is to get plugged in. And now I'm meeting all these amazing people. I mean, the last year and a half I've met so many amazing people. Um, it's, it's been, it's been great. You know, our, our mutual friend Rahat went back and he's living there in Bangladesh. Yeah, now. yeah. Yeah, so I wonder, I, I asked myself if I can do that. I don't know if I could to actually go in and, and live there. I just feel like it's, there's so many things that we just, I just feel like, I, you know, I go to Bangladesh and, and I've only been three times, I've been three, I've been back three times, but I feel like just even crossing the street, I need somebody to hold my hand. Like, like I can't do anything without somebody like, you know, telling me what to do, even though my Bible is pretty good. I just feel like, just like, you know, just buying something. I'm sure like you figure know. it out. Yeah, maybe then, after a year living there, yeah. yeah. And then you got to keep in mind, like, the important thing is, like, every society is two-tiered. The U.S. obviously is two-tiered. Places like Bangladesh, it's more extreme, right? Where I think the top tier, like, if you're, um, you know, like going from the U.S. to there, the, the, like, the class kind of you'd end up in, your life w- would somewhat resemble the U.S. Like, mm. with the, you know, like, um, like, Raha, he's working on a bunch of apps, like, Patao and things like that. Or he's on, that's someone else's app. Um, yeah. But, like, you would have a lot of that stuff, like Bangladesh is Uber, right? So like, yeah. your life yeah. wouldn't be too drastically different. But it would obviously be different, but you, you, I think you could adapt, which um, it'd be different though if you were, you know, like for the people who are in the working class strata, unfortunately their lives are like vastly different. No, I, I, you're right. I, I, know my, I know the money would, uh, the US dollar would get us a long way there. But mm-hmm. I just feel like there's definitely things that you just take for granted. Like, you know, you go to the, you know, you, you buy you, go, you buy medicine from a pharmacy here for the most part. It's not going to be expired. Like I've had experiences in one of this where oh like, yeah, or counterfeit, like, right? <laughs> yeah, like it's counterfeit or you know, doctors prescribing medicine that is has been recalled, like stuff like that, or just generally. I'm just saying in general, like you know, the yeah, concept of true. just like the concept of bargaining for everything. Like I can't bargain for my life. Like they gave me you know whatever price they can, I'll probably end up paying for it. You know, the concept, the idea of. And I, you know, not to be super, super um, negative about culture, but like you really do have to treat people a certain way to get stuff done. And I don't like that. I have, I know people that, you know, that go back and they're like, they kind of have to like turn off being nice when they go back, like just like getting to get stuff done from people. And I find that really frustrating. So having to have to do that. Right. I mean, that's not like a cultural thing. That's like a, like institution thing, right? Like it's just, that's, that's true of any place that has weak institutions. Yeah. 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 Um, like there are places in like in the U.S. that have weak institutions where you have to like muscle your way through or grease the cone yeah. or grease the wheels, right? Yeah, grease the um, wheel. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, uh, and it's unfortunate. Like I totally hear what you're saying. Um, that you know, like to get uh, like there's there's reading something some guy in GE was talking about where they they only use voice over IP in India because obviously, like as an American company, technically they cannot pay any bribes. Like it's illegal. Yeah. Um, Although like white money, political country range aren't uh, conservative. So they, they can't get phone lines done in India uh, because they'd have to pay someone a bribe to put it in. So what they do is they use voice over IP. So basically they're, when they make a call across the street, 
they're sending a, like a signal to like space via satellite internet and then coming back down. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's so interesting. It's just, you know, it's just weak institutions. And, um, I'm, but I'm loving, you know, like the number of people in various dias- cultural diasporas that are going back to their home countries. Yeah. Re-strengthen institutions. Uh, yeah. I think that's pretty admirable. And, you know, I'm kind of excited with to see what happens, not just for those countries, but you, can you imagine like what the world would be like if China had better institutions and we knew about like COVID-19 in like yeah. December? <laughs> it's insane. Yeah, it's insane. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, I just spent a bunch of time there. I'm just like, uh, I'm not surprised at, you know, the lack of transparency from them. I mean, even when you're there, there's no transparency. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's fascinating. Um, what's next for you? I know, so you've done a lot of, you know, corporate world. Now you're doing, are you, what's your goal? Are you looking to just expand your portfolio? What's next? Um, I think I want to, I, I'm very curious about this, uh, like the senior housing business we started, the assist living communities. Um, I've already eyed some kind of other candidates that I'd want to acquire. Um, obviously there's like, I think I've got a handle on the business model to make them profitable. But the other thing I like about it is, you know, I went from having mostly either virtual or um, contractors as employees to having 17 employees currently. Um, That's down from like 20 at the peak. I'm hoping to bring that back up. Um, But, you know, I really like, you know, being able to provide jobs into a community is is something I'm really interested in. Um, And I think the the labor pool that I've encountered in the ALF community is really interesting to me. It's a lot of like minority women who are actually like decently educated and had good careers wherever they're coming from, um, you know, be it the Philippines, the Caribbean islands, um, South America. Who, um, so some people were like physicians or nurses back in those countries are now working as like, you know, nurse assistants um, because they just need not, and they need an opportunity to keep, like, go forward. Uh, and in my mind, I was like, this is awesome because first, you know, there's a the philanthropic aspect of like helping these people and giving opportunity, but also there's also like, there's actually like a huge business opportunity. Like I don't think people are realizing is that you're taking someone who has like nurse talent and then yeah. you're hiring them for like, like down here yeah. and then you can bring them back here. So basically, you know, you can kind of like unlock all this value. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's where I'm like spending a lot of time and like trying to figure out like, you know, training programs, um, you know, like recruiting programs in that space. And cause you know, like in this business, like senior housing, assisted living facilities, you're basically in hospitality. Um, you're providing care and you're kind of like providing a second home for some, like, you know, like an LOD resident. And that's all related, like the chef, the housekeepers, the caretakers, that's all, it's just hospitality and training them appropriately to engage with those people um, in a certain way. So that's, that's what I really want to focus my energy on right now. And then the other thing is, is, you know, I'm like, I'm getting to a point where I don't necessarily have to invest for solely for the sake of returns. Um, that's kind of also why I'm like reaching out to like, and trying to learn more about the Bengali communities in the U S is now, you know, like we can, you know, with some friends and contacts that made direct capital into just founders who are Bengali who have promising ideas or, or, you know, any other um, disenfranchised communities that have good ideas or communities that aren't getting enough investment because, you know, I don't necessarily need to make the X, Y, Z return because I, you know, like I have a, a, another section of my portfolio that can do that. That's uh wow. That's, that's fascinating. One thing I wanted to ask you about, so we specifically mentioned Philippines and I wonder is uh, Philippines, um, because they speak pretty well, pretty good English, right? Uh, in yeah. the Philippines, so I want does that former American trans- colony? Yeah, exactly. So they speak English, right? So as opposed to another country, like China, for example, like China's uh, until recently they weren't really focused on learning English. So um, in mainland China, anyway. So then Philippines does that translate well? And that is that also the reason why the um, that specific community is on top because they speak English well and they're highly educated. I think that's very true for like virtual work. Um, okay. there's, but I'm just saying, um, I, I, there's actually like, I saw like, I think maybe like Vox or someone did a program about Philippine nurses. I've heard exactly. Um, Oh, I remember now. Basically there was like a shortage of like skilled labor in the U S and like in the eighties and nineties and they created a special visa program. 
Um, and like the Philippine community really took advantage, not took advantage, but like, you know, saw this as an, like a, a means to get here. And to a certain extent, I guess the U.S. State Department also took advantage of them to import a bunch of Philippine nurses. I, I don't necessarily think it's because like they speak English. It just so happens that there's a bunch of people in the Philippines here who had really good technical degrees from back in the Philippines who aren't necessarily using them in that same path. Okay. And they can, that skills can be reapplied. Okay. Uh, obviously, speaking English is great. Like that's yeah. like, really crucial. Yeah. Uh, Gotcha. It has a lot more to do with like the, the degrees that, that I see that these people have or had in their countries. Yeah. What? So um, when you, when you may when you invest in these, are you also an operator or are you investing in them and then finding operators to run these uh, housing units or assisted housing units? You're talking about like in this is living community. Yeah. Right now, I am a direct operator. Um, okay. So I actually have like an insurer license and all that. Um, but the goal is to create the infrastructure to get someone else to do it. And yeah. then I would work on just scaling the business, refining the, re uh, refining the business model, um, doing that part. Yeah, sounds exciting. Um, and uh, any plans of uh, coming back to uh, New York anytime soon? Yeah, when the pandemic's over. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, New York was yeah. a great city. Um, I think I tired of the lifestyle, but I love the people I met there. Like, I think New York is so cool for the people who are attracted. Like whether you're looking for artists, scientists, um, you know, like people in healthcare or like in business, like it attracts yeah. like the best of the best. Like yeah. you want to meet the like you know someone who's like this amazing like vocalist, you can, and they'll be the, they might be at the same party as like, like like you know like forty under forty like venture capitalist. Yeah, yeah. I feel like people that grew up in New York, like myself, I feel like we don't utilize um, everything New York has to offer. Like I don't. I feel, I feel like when tourists come and that's when we go to certain places or even parties, um, I feel like we're definitely not utilizing everything we have, we have here. Um, I feel like it's a great place to visit. I feel like I would love to go live somewhere else and come here to visit. That would be, that would be a cool uh, experience. But let's see. Yeah. Or you, or, do the, or you do the snowbird lifestyle or you spend summers there and winter somewhere else. Yeah, that would be that would be that would actually be amazing. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, let's let's see if I if yeah. uh, the thing I realized about New York, I think there's that, like um, stratified society, uh, obviously, but also one of the stratas I've seen is that there's a, it's a transplant crowd versus a native crowd. Um, like if you were from somewhere else and moved to New York for a job or school or whatever, most of your friends will also be like that. Whereas if you're from New York, most of your friends will be also New Yorkers. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously, there's some overlap, but like I. I think that's where a little bit of the gap is where like New Yorkers not taking advantage and similarly like, you know, transplants not taking advantage of the whole of everything. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. Well, listen, thanks for coming on. Um, great conversation. Um, I, uh, I, I, you know, I love everything you're doing and, uh, you know, hope to, uh, maybe we'll, you'll come back on for talk about something, maybe a deep dive into real estate. Cause we talked, uh, talked on uh, a number of topics. I'm sure people are interested in, um, you know, maybe real estate specifically or tech investing specifically, and we can talk on that. So that right, sounds good, man. Yeah, thanks a lot. Right, Appreciate right, it. Uh, I do it for my people, always in my thoughts. I gotta be honest with diamonds and pearls. Yeah, yeah. Bengal is in New York, all over the world. Uh, it's the bony show. Hey, uh, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live From the slang we spit to the gangs we're with It doesn't matter, we the essence of the Bangladesh I say, hey, come on, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live